from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a Berkeley faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Without further ado, it's a great pleasure to welcome Grace Lavery and Judith Butler here to talk about Grace's book, Quaint, Exquisite, uh, Victorian Aesthetics and the, and the Idea of Japan. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to them. Thank you. Um, Grace, do you want to begin by talking a little bit about your book, maybe speaking about the title, an interesting title, yeah. an interesting um, comma between quaint and exquisite? Um, Four terms, quaint, exquisite, Victorian aesthetics, the idea of Japan. Yeah. I was thinking one could one could add another set of terms like eccentricity or um, orientalism or um, any, uh, not any number, but, but some set of number of terms. Do you want to just talk to us about that first? Certainly, that's a, a great idea. And you know, I, th I think I also have to say um, thank you so much, Judith, for agreeing to do this event. It's extremely moving for me to be able to talk about my work with you. Um, Quaint, exquisite, Victorian aesthetics, and the idea of Japan. One of the things that's weird about writing a book is that you get used to saying the title so often that it becomes a kind of elevator pitch in its own respect. Um, and it's become defamiliarized to me. But one of the things that was very important to me when I realized that this was going to be the title was that I didn't want quaint and exquisite to be coeval terms. That is to say, I didn't want this to be one of those books, and we, there are a lot of them at the moment, um, which are about lists of aesthetic categories or about kind of aggregations or constellations of ideas. For me, um, quaint and exquisite were two very discrete ideas that had a certain kind of relation to each other, but were both drawn paleonymically, to use Derrida's word, from the archive that I was exploring. Um, and also required some kind of revaluation. So for those of you who haven't had the chance to read the book, which maybe is everyone, um, don't bother. But if you, want to, uh, if you want to, the argument that I make is that the particular way of writing about Jap Japan, and in particular Japanese beauty, that emerged in Britain in the 19th century, and I think still in some ways continues to hold sway today, is marked by a characterization of Japan as exquisite in some way, which is a word that is um, everywhere in the archive of Victorian Orientalism, as far as it has bearing on Japan. Um, and I think has a quite specific meaning, albeit one that isn't regularly or, or rigorously theorized. Um, and what exquisite, I think, means for, for people who are interested in Japan is that um, Japanese art for Victorians represented a supreme achievement of some kind. It wasn't merely quite good, that there was something kind of supreme or hyperbolic or extreme about the particular form of uh, Japanese beauty, but also that that extremeness, that very quality of supremacy was in some way threatening, or was in some way a kind of um, uh, something that created as much anxiety as desire, or stimulated as much kind of ambivalence as it did pleasure. Um, which is why uh, one, one can refer equally to a tea ceremony as exquisite and torture as exquisite. Um, and in some of the contemporary val valences of exquisite that I follow through the book, um, it turns out that word turns up dozens of times in Fifty Shades of Grey. 
to describe you know, sexual experiences that are kind of poignant or edgy, but not in a way that's actually disruptive, a kind of like highly commodified or kitschified form of edginess. Um, and quaint was quite different. Quaint, I think, was for me a term that also was very frequently associated with Japan in the 19th century, but referred to um, the way in which objects, for instance, Victorian objects or Japanese toys or paintings, whatever, become usable as historical evidence. The way that they pass into history, or as I put it in the book, the way in which they fail to pass into history or fail to become historical. So my idea was that there's something about, um, again, this kind of kitschified form of Japanese beauty that became highly theorized in the 19th century that was not available to a kind of straightforward or positivist claim about history somehow subverted or renegotiated that. So what I do in the book is um, I try to work through those objective renegotiations of the historical in relation to particular objects and also reflect on how the kind of effects of those objects in various different ways are colored by this mode of aesthetic experience that I've called exquisite. Mm -hmm. I've only talked about the first part of the That's thing, great. but I also talk too much. No, no, no. The rest keep, is boring. No, no, keep, keep going. I mean, one, one question I have about the, the next two Victorian aesthetics and the idea of Japan. Um, so yes, the materials that you so deftly and um, elegantly engage um, are drawn from the Victorian period. And you're trying, I think, uh, to say something quite new about um, Victorian aesthetics and a particular kind of sensibility that runs through it. Um, and I found that uh, enormously illuminating. Um, but sometimes it seems that we're talking about Victorian aesthetics, but then there's something called the West. Yeah. And we're talking about the idea of Japan, that is to say the idea of Japan that um, the Victorians entertained, constructed, circulated. Um, and, and that, of course, raises the question uh, of, well, where's Japan? Or... Um, or is this an Orientalist fantasy? Um, and, and you have some, a, a number of interesting things to say about that. But um, maybe my first question would be, um, do you want to say that by examining Victorian writing engagement with, writing on engagement with the idea of Japan, we're actually looking at a broader structure that we could call a, a Western relation to the East. Um, can, can we leap like that, or can, we, can we, we derive a generalization on the basis of this? How far do you want to go? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and what is your uh, relationship to um, the, how do you see this material in relationship to established ways of thinking about Orientalism? Yeah. So I, the first part of that question, I think, asked me to think about um, whether or not the idea of Japan is finally distinguishable from other ideas of Asia or an Orient or the thing that is not the West, if that is a negative construction that we want to kind of formulate. That was a big question. Um, it was a question that was posed to me quite directly at a couple of different moments in the composition of the manuscript. Um, within the field of East Asian studies, which is not my field, um, there is a 
challenge using prevailing uh, ways of thinking about Orientalism to talk about Japan for the simple reason that Japan was an empire. Uh, Japan was a regional empire that uh, had a mission of national and racial consolidation that was in certain ways modeled after European and North American um, pr programs of national and racial consolidation that it invaded during the time that I'm talking about Taiwan and Korea um, and that it won the Russo-Japanese War in 1904-1905 to the great surprise of Western powers that simply did not imagine that um, that, that was going to happen. And that moment, the, the vi Japanese victory in the Russo-Japanese War was immediately reported in, in, in British newspapers as the first of presumably many wars against European powers that would be won by Asian powers. That was the idea. Um, so however we're going to think about the Orientalism of these works, and, and I do, um, we can't, I think, default to the Saidian way of thinking about Orientalism because um, in, in that model, uh, knowledge of the Orient, however fictitious or, or, or grounded in fantasy, um, forms the basis for a certain kind of colonial power. And again, you know, in the work of someone like Kojin Karatani um, or Tani Barlow or Alan Tansman, in fact, uh, that relationship is, is just questioned. It, it, doesn't, it, it can't quite land in the, in the same way. So what I started to think about was, well, what about if the Orientalist gesture is not the claim of knowledge, I know X about Japan, but actually the claim, I know nothing about Japan, uh -huh. right? So what I learned was that, and this again is fairly obvious once one engages the archive, that since about the 1880s onwards, after the moment at which it became um, obvious to British readers and writers that Japan was somehow different, right, whatever that meant, maybe it meant that it had a well-developed railway network, maybe it meant that it had um, a kind of modernizing account of race, maybe it, meant, you know, it could have meant anything, but once that difference was established, um, it became the kind of uh, standard rhetorical gesture of an Orientalist text to be about Japan to begin by saying, well, of course, I don't understand anything about Japan at all. And now here's a book about the subject. Um, and a version of that kind of disclaimer continues again up until the present day, in fact, in the work of someone like Roland Barthes in Empire of Science. Not that that's the present day, but like famously, Empire of Science begins with, you know, I'm creating a faraway sign system, you know, and I'm going to call it Japan, but it's the object itself is going to be forever foreclosed. Um, or, you know, in the, a much more contemporary, a book called Great Mirrors Shattered by John Whittier Treat, which is a book that I like in certain respects, but again, you know, has this mode of creating and sustaining Orientalist knowledge through the discla disclaimer that one knows nothing. Mm -hmm. So what, what I'm interested in is the condition of possibility within Orientalist critique, which actually comes out of Karatani as well, of thinking, well, what does it mean if knowledge in relation to uh, the, the Orient or like an, an object of colonial desire or kind of like spatial desire, transnational desire, what if that object is partially known and the partiality of the knowledge is actually far more troubling than would be the total absence of knowledge, mm -hmm. such that one desires to know less than one in fact knows. And that, again, is one of the possible explanations, I think, or one of the, the ways in which this book leads me back to aesthetic theory, in fact, because the condition of desiring to know less than one knows is kind of somehow in the undertow of like, accounts of the aesthetic, where understanding is kind of bisected or cut across by mm -hmm. knowledge. Um, I found this to be a somewhat um, 
uh, I, I found it to be a strong statement on your part. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's not an easy statement to make, um, given the uh, importance and depth of the critique of Orientalism. And, and yet, um, it, it seems to me that you are taking an approach to this um, that suspends the question of moral judgment or condemnation. You're, you're not interested in saying, oh, look, these people made use of their limited or um, absent knowledge of Japan to construct a fantasy for their own consumption. End of story. Let's go home. Yeah. I think that's true. OK. Yeah, no. I, that, in, the, in the background of a lot of this was thinking about we've been going through as a discipline a relation to something called reparative reading or something where we're going to be reading affirmatively and positively about you know, f phenomena that may hurt us in certain respects. And I was thinking, Orientalism would seem to be a limit case for that, because it, it, at least in the kind of conventional ways of writing and thinking about it, it's pure cruelty, yeah. um, pure instrumentalization of bodies and subjects. And in fact, some of the, the instrumentalization of bodies and subjects that I talk about is quite extreme, in fact. Like, it, it actually, like, I, I don't think the book is, um, I don't think I shy from talking about violence. Like I think it's about talking yes. about violence a lot. Yes, you're, you're not, is it, is it, would it be right to say you neither applaud nor condemn? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that, I mean, I, I think I would say I condemn the Orientalism of the Orientalist writers that I'm talking about, but I'm also skeptical about most of the tools that we have for debunking that mode okay. of engagement in writing. Okay. And that skepticism is founded on the particular histories of the genre that I'm talking about. So let me read something from yeah. your, wonderful, <laughs> your wonderful book, um, uh, which really, I have to say, um, was in no way predictable. And I really appreciated that. So much of what I'm saying is like, oh, you know, like, <laughs> I, think, I think I know where this is going. And I had no idea where you were going. <laughs> and I, you know, I was on a wild ride with you. Uh -huh. and. and um, you know, even paragraph to paragraph, I thought, wow, I wonder, you know, it was, it was, it was very, uh, one had to stay with you mm -hmm. to, to follow the course of this. And I appreciated that demand. Mm -hmm. um, it, was, it was hard work, it was good work, but it was also uh, because it returned time and again to the, the question of feeling, of desire, of fantasy, you know, it also pulls, um, it, it pulls your reader in. And it's, um, and it's also, I would just say this as an aside, even though you, you engage in debates about you know, how best to read Kant's third critique in relationship to contemporary affect theory, or you know, what can psychoanalysis tell us about abandonment and melancholia, and, where does, and is, is Kant truly a melancholic, and you know, very high level kinds of um, conceptual work. It, it, there's also a, a, an effective pull throughout mm -hmm. that allows us to move between abstraction and feeling in ways that I thought were quite um, uh, um, quite wonderful. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I found that to be a real accomplishment of your writing um, and, and quite singular. Mm -hmm. So um, that's just me, maybe, you know, that just says more about what I usually read. But thank you. Um, thank you. That means a lot. Um, so you mentioned um, 
you're talking about several things, including uh, the Mikado, which you give a long reading of, a very interesting one. Maybe you can talk to us about that. And you, you then refer to the reality effect enacted by the Orientalists you're talking about and suggest that um, that reality effect takes the rhetorical form of preteritio. Um, quote, I don't really know anything about Japan, but, okay, <laughs> Um, which is sort of like the structure of fetishism, mm -hmm. right? I know very well that I know nothing about Japan, make mm -hmm. men, right? Mm -hmm. um, the Orientalist argument worlds itself by insisting on the otherworldliness of its object. Likewise, the Mikado's jovial ambiguity about its location makes claims about the real world, that which we might call the epistemological ambition of realism, while refusing to represent that world realistically, realism's aesthetic strategy. And then a line that I would love for you to talk about. I have come to refer to this position, affirming realism's epistemology while negating its aesthetic as queer realism. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us? Yeah, I know. Thank you. And you know, hearing those lines back as well, I, I'm really reminded of some of the stuff we were talking about at the start, which is that that verb "worlds." Yes. Um, it simply comes from the fact that I was asked to submit a version of that chapter to a special issue on worlding realisms. Huh. So the kind of world as a verb was one that I acquired contextually, and you know, obviously I didn't get rid of it. So I, I liked it enough to retain it, but in a sense, I. I encounter that and I think I'm not fully the author of that part of that idea. But so the, the distinction between the aesthetic and the epistemological grounds of realism is, um, I think within Victorian studies, a fairly familiar idea at this point, especially since the antinomies of realism and Frederick Jameson's um, you know, powerful, I think, epistemic defense of realism, which is to say, um, you can imagine a version of realism which defends itself uh, epistemically by saying this is the way the world is in some way, whatever that means. Um, and we can imagine a, uh, an aesthetic defense of realism or an aesthetic of realism, which would be something like in Victorian period, like the bourgeois novel, right? Um, we know what real, so George Eliot, for example, will frequently, although I think is really committed to the epistemic defense of realism, um, nonetheless defaults to a kind of aesthetic set of claims about realism. How do we know we're in a realist novel? Um, we just look at how beautiful the people around us are, and if they're too beautiful, we're in a Jane Austen novel. It's not realism, right? But if we see people are kind of like actually uh, interestingly, you know, uh, like unbeautiful, then the absence of beauty therefore indicates like a kind of realist aesthetic. And that's like the version of what Ian Watt would call the seamy side of, realism is the seamy side of things. So that distinction, I think, is, is fairly uh, familiar, but we're not used to thinking of them as at odds with each other. Um, we, we're used to thinking of them as different kinds of emphases or different aspects of the same paradigm. And what I was thinking about with the, the Mikado is, historically speaking, the one thing that every reader of the Mikado has had to say about this opera is, oh, it's not really about Japan. Right? Whatever else we can say about the Mikado is not really about Japan. Now, I'm able to, in the book, explain that idea in historical terms. It turns out like people decided it wasn't about Japan in 1908 for very specific reasons.
But even notwithstanding that, that raises the question of what it means to be about something. What is, what is being depicted, if not Japan? What is the, what is the aboutness? What is the substance of this, um, of this thing that's being represented? Um, and so for me, the answer to that was that it turns out that the real conditions of possibility for describing Japan in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a manner that reflected a realist epistemology or a realist uh, episteme were not available through realist aesthetics. For, for real historical reasons, the real object called Japan could not be re represented realistically. That sentence was given to me by someone else, and I liked it so much that I really wanted to use it, and I couldn't. So then the other part of the question is, why is this queer? Like, what is, what is queer about this? Or what is queer about the kind of split of the epistemic and the um, aesthetic, as, insofar as they might be grounding different notions of the real or grounding different notions of realism? Um, and I think I have a couple of different answers to that. So the local answer would be that um, I have asked myself many times why it is that people seem so sure that the Mikado is a satire. If it's a satire, what's it a satire of, right? It's not as though, like, if any, you know anything about the Mikado, like, you know that one of the things that is apparently satirized is there is a character who has too many jobs, right? Poobah. Um, was it the case that in 1885, like a bunch of British writers were concerned that government officials had too many jobs? No, not really. I mean, like the argument has been made against me that maybe this is something to do with a kind of like Sidney Webb argument about socialism. And I kind of think, well, maybe. But like, I think it's actually satire might just be too attractive a word to describe this. Um, but one of the things that is at play here is within the world of the Mikado, um, Flirtation has been has been made punishable by death. Mm. That's the kind of premise. Mm. Mm. So that is to say, from the start of this play, we are in a world where we're, anyone who um, flirts, wears, or links, wink, flirts, leers, or winks, unless connubially linked, um, shall forthright have his head off. Right. So decapitation connected to um, even solicitation or winking. And I thought, well, this is kind of fascinating because. The summer of 1885, when the Mikado opened at the Savoy Opera, was the same summer in which Henri Labouchere proposed the famous amendment, the Criminal Law Amendment Act, which criminalized the flirtatious relationships between men that would eventually lead to the imprisonment of Oscar Wilde in 19, uh, 1895. And the, the Labouchere Amendment was notable legally for criminalizing not a sexual act, but the solicitation of a sexual act. So in other words, within a kind of triangulation through Japan as a framework for thinking about the thing that can't be directly represented, you have a fairly literal, epistemically grounded claim about the nature of law insofar as it would affect homosexual men in London in 1885. Um, but that doesn't quite make sense, or you can't quite access it until you have worked through the coding of Japan as, as queer in a more general aesthetic sense anyway. Mm -hmm. So that's the local answer. My, my, my supposition or my hope is that it would be possible more broadly to think of queer forms of realism that would offer, um, you know, this is just a kind of longer term claim. I mean, the book that I'm writing now is about George Eliot. You know way of asserting a kind of realism to queer life in the face of an expectation that uh, the lives of queer people will always be marked by simply parody, pastiche, 
um, misdirection, you know, and, and those ideas around um, the, the anti-realism of queerness mm -hmm. seem to me to be, especially in our present moment, pretty damaging. Mm -hmm. So to try to renovate a way of thinking about queer realism. Is, mm. And actually, you know, in the Elliot Project, which I realize is not the purpose today, but in the Elliot Project specifically, a trans realism, um, to think about realism as a term on which queer people have a particular purchase and a particular set of claims mm -hmm. seems to have a kind of political urgency mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, in describing your project, um, you, um, you suggest um, that there might be a kind of link between the interest in Japan and queerness. And what would that link be exactly? Um, why Japan? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, what makes Japan queer, or what makes queerness a uh, part of Japanese in the yeah. in in that sense? It's a big, big mystery, and I, I guess the first thing I can say is that I, I'm not the first person to make this claim, both within sort of East Asian studies and in like American cultural studies and British cultural studies. It seems to be something that has been noted many times. It happens in the Belt and the John Whittier Treat, and it happens in a number of different places. And as soon as one starts looking at 19th and early 20th century texts about Japan, one notices that the word queer comes up a lot, and also many of the men who are writing these books turn out to be bachelors who kind of live essentially what look like gay lives. Um, so the question is, you know, not merely a heuristic one, but a historical one. Like, why on earth did that happen? Mm -hmm. And it didn't seem, the same could not easily be said for um, other kinds of Orientalism in the same way. I mean, on the evidence of the historical archive I've been able to assemble, which, mm -hmm. you know, is as incomplete as anybody's, um, that, that, that seems to be the case. And I think I have a couple of hunches, one of which is that because Japan was exempted from the particular form of colonial, the particular form of colonial administrative desire that would have affected um, other kinds of Orientalisms, it therefore left itself open to a different kind of utopian longing mm -hmm. that would not organize itself around the kind of um, reproduction of the colonial family or the reproduction of the colony as a space of white futurity. Um, and, and one can imagine ways in which 19th century gay men would, would have an interest in that kind of thing. And then another possibility would be the routing through aestheticism, not rather than the aesthetic or Victorian aesthetics, but aestheticism as yes. a social formation yeah. Yeah. that was, among other things, um, a set of social connections for wealthy gay men in the England of the 1860s through to the 1890s. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the social networks were already in place that would allow for Japan to be coded through those kinds of um, connectivities. And it, you know, it, one, I, I say this is obvious, but if you haven't, you know, no one else would know this unless they looked at the stuff, but like in, in the 80s, the phrase Japanese young man was a euphemism for a gay man. Right, which is why when Gilbert and Sullivan uh, have Bunthorn step forward in the beginning of Patience and confess to the audience that he's not really anesthetic, he says, you know, conceive me if you can. Sorry, I've got the wrong. This is when the dragoons have decided they want to go and become aesthetic. They say, conceive me if you can, a Japanese young man. Um, and Wilde in Art and the Handicraftsman begins by saying, you have heard of me perhaps as a Japanese young man. Uh -huh. um, 
And that, that Japanese is an interesting term because it doesn't mean that I'm Japanese like a Japanese person. It means I'm Japanese like a Japanese like willow plate or maybe wallpaper or a print or something, right? Like I'm, I'm not Japanese in the way that a person would be Japanese. I'm Japanese in the way a Japanese art would be Japanese. Um, and that beatification or aestheticization is somehow a way of demurring from, separating oneself out from the orthodox reproduction of like domesticated compulsory heterosexuality that, that forms the, the major object of critique of aestheticism as a social movement. Mm -hmm. So I have one response to that, and then maybe I'd ask you to talk a little bit about Wild, and then we can yeah. open it up. Um, my one response would be, um, if, if effectively uh, someone is saying, uh, um, I'm a Japanese young man um, in a coded way, meaning I'm a Japanese plate or calligraphy or something like that. Um, uh, I am that thing for someone, that is to say a viewer, a desiring subject, who has a certain idea of Japan already mm -hmm. um, uh, in play. Um, and so I, I am that thing in relationship to a Victorian imaginary or a Victorian fantasy, right? There's nothing, there's no, um, there's no, uh, um, there's no independent, there is no reality independent of the fantasy. That's of true. That. Okay. That's true. But uh, we, I should have said this earlier. One of the things that makes this kind of ethically complicated yes. is that this is a moment in time when the Japanese state is coming into being and producing an idea of Japan that is deeply in conversation with and enmeshed within the Orientalist logics that are constructing Japan as a kind yes. of a fantasy other. Yes. So that, the, the kind of absence of an independence from fantasy is a condition that also affects the many Japanese writers that I talk about here. Yes. And a sense that the kind of, um, equivocation around those kinds of fantasies is a kind of permanent condition, is, is a felt reality for someone like Mikimoto Ryuzo just as much as it is for Oscar Wilde. Okay. So, Wilde, you talk a little bit about the publication history of Wilde's books and why, and, and, and note that they're very often um, embedded in Japanese formats or with illustration mm -hmm. or Maybe you could talk to us just about about that that book history. What is that? Yeah. And and um, and Wilde also seems to refer to himself um, uh, as um, um, well. He actually refers to the attribution of his Japanese fetish as a wild rumor, as another, yet another yeah. rumor, yeah. right? Calling upon the other rumors. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, the ones that, that landed him in, him in jail. Mm -hmm. um, could, could you just talk about wild, wild and the intersection with the idea of Japan for a moment? Yeah. And then we will surely open up, sorry. So one of the things that I find really fascinating about Wilde's relation to Japan is that it seems to have begun when he was in America. 
it seems to the spark seems to have landed when he was um, on tour in the United States between 1878 and 1879, and specifically when he was visiting the prison in Lincoln, Nebraska, which was at that time the largest prison in the world, right, the largest modern prison in the world. And the idea, and someone while he was on a tour of this prison, started telling him about Japanese art, and he got really into it, and he immediately wrote home to Walter Sickert, the painter. Um, and said, we have to go to Japan together. And then Sickert said, I, I can't go to Japan. And then he wrote to Whistler, and, and Whistler said, oh, I'll go to Japan with you, but that didn't really happen. And before Wilde had left the United States, he'd found some boy whose name we don't know and told him that they needed to go to Japan together immediately. Um, and they didn't, they didn't go. You know? So Wilde actually like, wrote a lot about really wanting to go to Japan and never went to Japan. And then in The Decay of Lying, 1891, which is the document that everyone who's written about this quotes at length, he says, if you want to see a real Japanese effect, you will not behave like a tourist and go to Japan. Uh, rather, you will study the art of certain Japanese artists and you will see a Japanese effect in Piccadilly as well as you'll see it anywhere. Mm. Right? So there's that sense that well, the process that he's been going through is abstraction. Um, he's, he's acquired the, the ability to abstract his Orientalist desire into something purely aesthetic. Um, the, the part around book history that you're referring to is that... Um, in the second half of the 19th century, the most expensive paper that you could print your book on if you wanted to was Japanese vellum. It was more expensive than India vellum. It was more expensive than handmade English paper. Um, and most of, the, uh, most of the late Victorian aestheticism books were published in both a cheap version for the you and me of the world and then the, a very expensive luxury edition for wealthy collectors. Um, Wilde, interestingly, did not generally do that. Um, somewhat to my surprise, especially since it's a big part of the plot of Picture of Dorian Gray, if anyone remembers that, um, he, he didn't really do that until after he was released from prison. And one of the reasons for that was that he was only publishable after he was released from prison by a pornographer. So his work was circulating as though it was pornography. And his publisher was a man named uh, Leonard Smithers. And in order to make money as a pornographer, this is like one of those things that once you've learned it, you just think that's so intuitive, but I would never have thought of it, right? If you're gonna make money as a Victorian pornographer, you run two editions. You run a really cheap version that someone can dispose of as soon as they're finished with it. And you run a really expensive version that is so expensive that you can put it on your shelf and claim that it's classy erotica, right? <laughs> So the, the, most really late Victorian pornography is published in those two editions. And for what it's worth, like the really cheap paper ended up preserving itself much better than the really expensive. <laughs> so like we actually have more. Anyway, so my point being, it was actually when Wilde's work was being published in that format that he turned to Japanese vellum as one of the grounds which he was published. Um, and one of the things that I found so moving and fascinating was in 1905, after he, five years after he had died, uh, another pornographer named Charles Carrington put out a transcript of the trials of Oscar Wilde um, that begins with a deep and passionate critique of the carceral logic under which he was, uh, under which he was killed by the state through uh, being um, sentenced to two years with hard labor, um, and a deep and a sort of deeply moving account of uh, the viability and necessity and ethical value of, of gay love and gay sex. 1905, right? And it was only published on Japanese paper. Uh, and the reason for that is that 
uh, it was such a scandalous work, the trials, that it could only be, the circulation had to be limited among readers whose sensitivity and sympathy could be assured to the, to the stuff that was being published. So in other words, the kind of Carrington trials in 1905 became this way for me to think about how Japanese vellum in this highly orientalized, totally abstracted, totally commodified way also became a vehicle for something deeply intimate, actually, and, and, and a way of producing a kind of um, physical co-presence between people who were um, persecuted by the same laws. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, love to take questions from the audience. Um, yeah. Um, let's go here and here. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so you've spoken a little bit about how the idea of Japan as an abstract idea both can occur anywhere mm -hmm. and still hold sway today. And I want to ask about how you mobilize the idea of Victorian aesthetics, because not only are your objects not all British, you talk about Ryuzo, um, and then you also talk about uh, late 20th century objects um, or early 21st century objects in your final chapter um, when you talk about film. And I was wondering if you could talk about the movement of uh, Victorian aesthetics in relation to the idea of Japan, that fourth term. Yeah, yeah, thank you. It's, and also, Mary, uh, I want to say in this space, thank you for all of your work on the book. You were an extraordinary research assistant. It was a real honor to work with you. Um, yeah, so the kind of portability of the notion of the Victorian in this book is something that uh, I have thought about from a number of different angles, partly because one of the great virtues of Victorian as a designation within scholar scholarship is it has fixed dates. You know, the, the line that I tend to spin is like, if you ask a romanticist if a text is romantic, they'll come up with a kind of like really complicated theory. If you ask a modernist whether a text is modernist, they'll come up with a really complex evasion. And you ask a Victorianist whether a text is Victorian, they'll ask you when it was published, right? Like there, there's a sense in which there's a, there's a, there's a kind of like basic historical um, economy, which which I want to preserve, although the problem is I haven't done that, right? So you know I violated my own principle um, because I do think that there is something importantly Victorian about many of the post 1901 um, accounts of Japan that I have been interested in. And to take one example that um, comes quite near the book, the scene between Oren Ishii and the bride Beatrix Kiddo at the end of Kill Bill Part One, right? Which is, and many of you will have seen this, it's sort of snow. Um, there's a uh, beautiful little water clock thing in the background, there's swords. The word that all of the reviewers, all of the reviewers used to describe this scene was exquisite, right? And what they meant by that was there was a sudden eruption of abstraction into a scene that was not previously abstract, mm. and that that abstraction was somehow being written on the body mm. in the form of both hyper-aestheticization and a form of violent interruption, violent bisection of the body. To me, that framework for thinking about the conjunction of violence and beauty as they would converge on the object of Japan is remarkably proximate 
to the stuff that one would see in Algernon Charles Swinburne saying that Japan is not, Japanese art is not merely the incomparable achievement of certain harmonies in color, it's the annihilation of everything else. Um, that continuity surprised me um, because the historical conditions of 1877 do not resemble the historical conditions of 2004 at all, um, or at least insofar as they're both brought under the, the kind of like late capitalism, like on that kind of ma ma macro periodic scale, one could certainly say that. But, you know, in terms of the way that American mass culture was relating to Japan in a kind of broader sense, I, I, that, that, that seems really different. But the, but the recurrence of that particular shorthand where Japan means the extreme form of beauty that can hurt you, um, that, that consistency is remarkable, and I wanted to remark it. Um, and Victorian seemed like a good way to do so while evading the question of the modern, which, which seemed importantly not the question that I was interested in adjudicating, because in the confrontation between Japan and the Victorian or the West or the 19th century British writer, which I accept is a sort of slippage in the book, um, but in that encounter, the coevalness of modernity is a premise. So it is assumed by both sides that modernity can be plural, um, that the modernity of Japan is distinct from and in some way competitive with the account of modernity that one would find in Wilde's own thought. You know. mm -hmm. Kevin. Thank you for the talk. Um, so you just talked a little bit more about exquisiteness, and I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about quaintness. Yeah. Um, and so it's, I haven't gotten the chance to read your book yet, so sorry if the answer is just read the book. But um, It'll never be that. <laughs> um, but I was, I was wondering if maybe, uh, the way that you were talking about quaintness earlier, I was wondering if you could maybe expand on ways that that relates to more familiar um, like queer theory categories for thinking about queer aesthetics on the one hand, and then like queer relations to history on the other. Um, and to elaborate on that a little bit, like it seems to me like uh, the way you're talking about this quaintness has something to do with both a like temporal relation to history and also, um, and also is, is an aesthetic category that seems kind of comparable to something like camp where, mm -hmm. um, something is outmoded, yet you have like a desiring or an affective relationship to it. And mm -hmm. so I, I guess I'm wondering, like, yeah, on the one hand, how do you relate quaintness to more familiar categories like camp? And then on the other hand, like, does it relate in any way to kind of um, recent theories of like queer relations to history or temporality? So I'll answer the second part first because it's a little bit of a shorter answer, which would say, yes, I would say methodologically, some of the primary uh, commitments that I was making in, in, in the composition of this book were Anne Svekovic. Um, I would say Anne Svekovic was deeply important, actually. And then, um, to, to some extent, Heather Love as well, and some of those other thinkers of the queer touch across time. You know, Dinshaw. Dinshaw, yeah. no, yeah. I know. But it, the reason why I feel complicated about Dinshaw is because I think Dinshaw's reading of Pulp Fiction is really wrong. Yeah. And like, <laughs> so actually, like, I, there's a weird like, critique of Dinshaw in the book. I but see. Um, it's, it's like, it's such small fry. But actually, like, actually, I kind of feel strongly about Pulp Fiction. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, but so, so that part is just like, I can, I can say yes, that, 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 is, um, that is important. But the, 
The question of camp is really interesting and, and not one that I'd thought of. I, I think, um, here's my instinctive response. It's important to me that quaintness not be routed through the logic of repetition um, or imitation or um, uh, outmodedness exactly. I'm talking about something like redundancy, like pri primary redundancy. That is to say an object that perhaps it is original but is also unimportant. And the lack of importance is what produces the condition of historical relation that I think of as quaint. Um, and again, it's a descriptive term. So I'm describing the way I think Victorians understood Japan as possessing a history um, and the ways in which that history might be understood in relation to other models of thinking historically. So it seems plausible to me that one could offer an account of camp, and people do this obviously all the time, but people could offer an, an account of camp that successfully um, distinguishes between camp as drag or camp as parody and camp as like a thing that's built to fail. But the built to fail aspect of camp would still be what I'm interested in here. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, yeah. Okay, do we have a, a last question or two? Maybe do we have time for some quick ones? Yes, in the back. Yeah. Right. And one of you, sorry, I mean, since there was no microphone, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat the question yes. if that's okay, which was, uh, one of my chapters has a, an epigraph from Confessions of a Mask by Yukio Mishima. And um, I've been asked to sort of reflect on um, the significance of Mishima for the, for the project. And I think, yeah, again, I think I can simply say yes. Um, what I take from Mishima as a, as a figure in this book, who's not a figure I write about a great deal, is that Mishima, almost uniquely among readers of Wilde, understood that for Wilde, beauty and violence were twinned. And Mishima was a fabulous reader of Wilde to that degree, because when Victorian British writers were thinking about, for instance, in The Nightingale and the, the Nightingale and what's it called? The, the Nightingale and the Thrush. I can't remember what it's called. But the, the, the thorn in the heart. The, uh, you remember the scene? The Nightingale has to sing a song of love. And, in order to, and while singing the song of love, pierce his heart <coughs> with a thorn and bleed out onto a flower to stain a white flower red and then give the flower to a student so that the student can give it to his beloved. And then the, the, the kind of payoff is like the beloved doesn't like it and then the student decides that love is dumb anyway and he should go back to his studies, <laughs> right? But the whole purpose of the story has been about the value of an account of beauty that is founded upon suffering, and a suffering whose primary metaphor is exsanguination, which of course it was for Mishima as well, um, in a startlingly literal <coughs> way. So I, I have no, I'm careful in the book not to claim expertise over Japanese literature, most of which I have not read in the original, <coughs> and not competent to read in the original. But I have certainly thought often that Mishima is a figure that brings together the kind of queer interest in beauty as violence routed through, in, in that case, an auto-orientalized account of Japan. Um, so thank you, that's, that's vital. I've not been asked that question before, it's vital.
um, I, th I think we have uh, come to the end of our, t our time. Um, I wanted just to uh, thank you, Grace, for um, the gift of this book and of your <coughs> extraordinary mind, um, your extraordinary language, um, and for taking us on this, this, uh, this ride. <laughs> <coughs> I also note that as much as you <coughs> acknowledge that you're working within a kind of Orientalism that hasn't been kind of properly described by other Orientalist models. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. You also refer to an intercultural transmission, mm -hmm. which at least gestures towards a reciprocity, mm -hmm. which moves outside that logic. Yeah. And I think maybe the last question also touches upon that. Yeah, I think that's important. Great. So uh, th thank you enormously. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you. Uh, that was great. We hope you enjoyed this Berkeley Book Chat, and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in this series.